Hello everyone. We'll continue today in our series looking at John's Gospel. And we're back in chapter 5 where we've now been for a number of weeks. However, this is the very last part of this rich chapter and you can look forward to next week for us moving into chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000. But today we find ourselves with Jesus picking another fight, another argument with the Jewish leaders and authorities of the day. He's debating scripture and he's going after Bible scholars. Not that being a Bible scholar of God's word is a bad thing, but Jesus does have an issue with deaf scholars. It is almost as if we are in a courtroom with Jesus, presenting the evidence of his defence case, but also presenting, as we will see, a damning case against the religious authorities. As we look at this passage as portrayed by John, let us not forget the reason that John has written his gospel, as recorded at the end of chapter 20. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And we will see that in, a, in what Jesus himself says today. Jesus is always on trial. Have you ever noticed that? Throughout his ministry, his authority is constantly being challenged. This eventually, of course, results in an actual trial where he comes before Pilate. But even today, Jesus is on trial. In the courts of popular opinion, Jesus is on trial. We live in a world with all the facts. Let's face it, Google knows everything. But sadly, if we were to ask Google who Jesus is, then a number of the answers may not stand up to scrutiny. In this passage, we will find Jesus presenting evidence that does need to be weighed. In fact, it needs to be fact-checked. It's no good just understanding what the evidence is, but we need to weigh it up. And yet, as we will see from the passage, even for the considerable weight of evidence, there are many that just do not accept it. And it is often rejected, which of course is as true today as it was then. And we will see the root of the problem as to what causes this rejection, both then and in the lives of those that we know as our non-Christian friends, neighbours and colleagues. Now when it comes to presenting the case for Christ, who better than Christ himself? After all, he does, as we saw last week, have authority from the Father. As we noted when Jesus says, the Son does nothing by himself. He's given authority by the Father, which includes the authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man, back on verse 27. So as we continue with the passage from verses 31 to 47, we'll pick up on several points, verses 32, 37 and 43, where Jesus will point back to the Father and his authority under which Jesus acts at all times. In fact, the very start of this passage, verse 31, Jesus states he can't testify for himself. Now before we enter court, it's worth noting that the audience here is a Jewish one. And like today, when we have strict rules of what evidence is permissible or not in court, the Jews would well be aware of the Hebrew law of evidence, as found in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offence that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
So, as with any case that we may take to court today, it is important that we present more than one piece of evidence if we want to be likely to win the case. And Jesus is indeed bringing three pieces of evidence or witnesses to the proceedings here. It's interesting to note that these are not just three witnesses, but they're three pieces of evidence, each unique in its type. We have a witness statement, we have forensic or physical evidence, and we have documentary evidence. So, let's call our first witness and read with me from verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony is about me is true. Here Jesus talking about God the Father and his authority. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. The first key witness here is John the Baptist, a human witness. John who says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, back in chapter 1. And he must become greater and I must become less, he declares in chapter 3. The Bible's full of witnesses who give testimony as to who Jesus is. John who writes this very gospel as a signpost to Jesus and a testimony to who he is also says in his letter in 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you, what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. It is with great joy that he testifies. And the same also with Peter who writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's in 2 Peter 1 and verse 16. Human witness is an important thing. Did you know when it comes to people becoming Christians, statistics constantly show that it's because of the witness of a friend that the majority of people turn to Christ and become a Christian. You are a witness both through the life that you lead and the words that you say. When I was preparing this message, I came across a lovely quote from a pastor and evangelist from Ceylon, or Sri Lanka as it's known. His name's Daniel T. Niles, who once said, when asked to define evangelism, that it was like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Our witness is so important, friends, and people are hungry. Okay, back to our passage, and let's pick up at verse 36. As even though it appears that the Jews had delighted in the message of John for a time, clearly there is more evidence of a weightier nature than the testimony of one man. And we find exhibit number two in this verse. I have testimony weighter 
than that of John, says Jesus. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. This second witness is the works, the miracles, or as John we know calls them, the signs that Jesus has been performing. Here we have some physical or forensic evidence to consider. In the Gospels there are just over 30 miracles recorded. John himself focuses on just seven. And so far in our um, passages when we've been going through John we've only seen three, starting with water into wine then the healing of the official son and most recently the healing at the pool seen here in chapter 5 and the whole reason Jesus is now debating with the Jewish leaders at this time. Next week we'll see number four, feeding of the 5,000, which is one of those um, that are recorded across all four of the Gospels, and then five, six, and seven, of course, will follow. But there were many signs or miracles or works that the Jewish people would have already witnessed at this stage, not just the three that John has so far focused on in his Gospel. Why are these signs important? Because, as it says, they testify that the Father has sent him. It adds weight to the case. Okay, now to the third type of evidence. We've had the witness statement, we've considered the impact of forensic evidence, and now to some documentary evidence. Back to our passage and um, verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think in them you will have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus presents the scriptures for us. And we're focusing, of course, on the Old Testament as we know it today. And in the main here, he's talking about the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The books of Moses, the Jewish hero on which they place so much. We'll come back to Moses in a moment, but let's just consider scripture in its whole for a moment. Hopefully in your hand, or maybe close by, you have your Bible. A book that isn't, of course, just one book, but in fact, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. You know, it's been written by some 40 authors in three languages over a period of 1,500 years. And it's a remarkable thing to just think about that for a moment and understand that whilst it was written by 40 people over such a long time span, it is a remarkable book because of the way it is so tightly unified together and the more you read it the more it reveals the truth of its authenticity. There will always be of course people that will tell you that the Bible is full of inconsistencies but if any have taken the time to consider carefully this evidence then they soon realize that this is a book that stands up to scrutiny. In fact it's often the inconsistencies perhaps between the Gospels that give more weight to them being true. I mean, if four witnesses in court were to give identical statements, it would suggest that they had been coerced to a specific version of events. As for the Bible, it goes without saying that as a piece of literature, 
it has been and will continue to be the most scrutinised book ever. And yet it's recognised by the scholars that it's authentic. Some of us took the opportunity to connect into Life Matters uh, last Wednesday and hear from Dr Max Baker-Hitch, a doctor of philosophy and a lecturer at Oxford University. When we considered uh, the subject, are the Gospels trustworthy? I guess there may be a recording available if you missed it, but spoiler alert, the answer is yes. Okay, back to the specific evidence as presented by Jesus in the scriptures. In the scriptures, the Father himself has testified. In fact, the whole of the Bible points to Jesus, and the Old Testament has more than 300 predictions regarding the Messiah, or of course Jesus, all of which Jesus fulfills. The chances of one person fulfilling just a handful of these prophecies is just astronomical. He fulfills over 300. However, Jesus wants to reveal a truth here. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. They don't look for Christ in the scripture. And just reading the word as a piece of fascinating literature will not bring eternal life. And Jesus wants to reveal that. This is an issue of the heart, not of the mind. This is a case of, it's not what you know, but who you know. They know the word of God, but not the God of the word. Studying the Bible will not bring you into heaven on its own, although the grasping the truth found in the Bible, knowing Jesus will bring you into eternal life, will it do eventually. This brings us away from presentation of evidence in this courtroom scene to a, a chance to understand the charges that Jesus is levying on these Jewish leaders. And he doesn't hold back. In verses 37 through 47, we count no less than six charges. Let's look at them now. I have the charge sheet right here. Charge number one, found halfway through verse 37. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. In short, you... You don't have the God's word in you. You know it, but it's not within you. You don't believe the one who God has sent. Charge number two, verse 39 and 40. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you will have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That charge is simply put, you don't want to come to me. Charge three, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. You don't have the love of God in you. Charge four, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Simply put, you don't believe me. 
charge five. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The fact remains, you cannot believe. You've made it impossible for yourself. Charge six. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? In short, you don't believe Moses, and you don't believe me. That last one probably hurt the most. You think your hope, hope is in Moses, but Moses himself testified about me, and you missed that. Moses, on whom their hope is set, told them back in Deuteronomy 18.15, we can read it, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. But together this is a relentless set of charges. You don't have God's word in you. You don't believe the one who he has sent. You don't want to come to me. You don't have the love of God in you. You don't believe me. You cannot believe me. You don't believe Moses and you don't believe me. The key to the issue is their refusal to come to him that we find in verse 40. But the reason for this is their heart, which we can see in verses 41 to 44. It's all about where Jesus receives his glory from, his Father. Versus the glory they seek, a human glory. You accept the glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Where does that leave us today, in 2020? Well, this may be a case brought against the Jewish people, but when you consider this issue as a human issue, an issue of the heart, a problem with our hearts, we may, we may well know God through his word, but does it change us? Do we allow it to change us? What stops us from allowing the message of Jesus to change us? Is it pride? Is it a wrong perspective? Is it a case of seeking glory from others but not giving him the glory? Seeking glory for what we can do or what we are able to do for Jesus? Or are we seeking to glorify him for what he has done for us? Do our lives truly reflect that we know Jesus. This may be a charge against the Jews, but it's a human condition. It affects us all. Maybe we haven't yet made up our minds. Maybe we have yet to weigh up all the evidence, the witness of others, the evidence of Christ, the truth in the Bible, the whole Bible. I mean, let's not forget that unlike the Jews that were dealing with the first five books of our Old Testament, we have the New Testament which means we have a greater opportunity than the Jewish leaders had in this passage. Lots to think about, lots to be challenged by. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We recognise that it's the word that changes people. If we allow it to change us. Lord, help us to be changed, to be more like your son, Jesus. We must become less and allow him to become greater, as John says. Not for our glory, Heavenly Father, but for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.